Welcome to the fourth NAOP Silicon Valley podcast. Today, we're down in Carmel at the home of Dennis and Heather Chambers. Along with them, we have Kent Hillhouse and Mark Rigoli to go over the history of CPS, their careers in commercial real estate brokerage, and some fun memories of careers in real estate. Since this is a uh, NIOP podcast, I'm going to go back to my first week in real estate, um, which was April of 1988, and I was invited to an NIOP luncheon, and Chambers was the speaker, and he had a big grocery bag, and he pulls out this colorful Swami hat and puts it on, because it was the annual prediction luncheon, and uh, it was very memorable, to say the least, and he made a bunch of predictions about what was going on. And at that time, we were kind of heading into a recession. It was a tough time in the market. And I thought since uh, there's a lot of people that are going to listen to this that are newer to the business and have never been through a recession, I was hoping we could start with a little advice about what to do in a recession. (laughs) What to do? (laughs) You mean from a brokerage perspective? Brokerage, just in general, how you approach stuff. Because you've been through a lot of, you know, Good times, bad times, and uh, how do you always approach that? So, well, we just have to stay in cash. We just don't do anything, <laughs> and the opportunities will pop up, and you have to say no. It only take the best opportunities because you're going to need your cash to get through this. This puppy's going to go for a couple of years, give or take. So, you think that long? Yeah, I think I think the banking thing is just starting. Unfortunately, I think they're trying to play it down. They've lied to us so much about everything for the last. X number of years that I don't trust anything anybody in the government says. It's Nor should anyone listen to this broadcast, I would hope. So. Yeah. It, se- it seems like it's going to be a while. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, like, when things got bad, like, how did you motivate your team? Because a lot of people listening to this are going to have teams of people, because that, that was a tougher time, right? <clears throat> it was, yeah. I don't, I, honestly, I did. those are tough questions. Um, I well, I wasn't going to softball it. Yeah, yeah, no, I didn't know we were going to have that, those kind of questions. Well, I mean, we had, I mean, you guys built a super strong team at CPS, right? Yeah. I mean, you got guys like, uh, a roster of people that are pretty impressive. Connie Baker, Chip McDonald, Doyle, Heaston, Horton, Fox, Scott, Sherman, just to name a few, all went on to Hall of Fame brokers. Like, yeah. How did you encourage those people to get in, motivate them, and kind of become top performers? Because like, there's no way that was an accident, right? Um, well, we, we just take them out and put them in deals with us. So I'd go out with, with uh, Connie or I'd go out with, uh, with Sherman or whatever. And, and Sherman was actually pretty talented. <clears throat> but uh, we'd just take them out in deals and, and share with them. Bring them into deals. Remember, we, we did the Atari account in some bad times there. And we're doing 100,000 square feet a month. So it was easy to bring in a different broker from the office each time. And I'd do different yeah. ones. So that keep them in, in green for a little while. Anyway. Yeah. Well, because you at one point when we got together earlier said that there was a big percentage that you guys dominated in the market during those times. Yeah, I, when I think back to the early days, Chambers had some terms he liked to throw out, like get out and cold call, um, buy a Mercedes, and that way you're going to have to earn money to pay it off. <laughs> Maybe an airplane or a boat, doesn't matter, just get out there and spend money so that you can make money and, and stay motivated. Um, I came out of the uh, semiconductor business, so I knew some of the players in the market, so it was natural for me to go after those guys. But um, um, James is correct. I mean, it, you, you were seven to seven. I think. Yeah, I'm not absolutely. Sure you that term, but yeah. uh, uh, you work hard and you 
you cold call and you go out and knock on doors. It's uh, pretty basic stuff. Yeah. We, we wouldn't hire anybody unless they had a year's worth of salary in their pocket. Okay. That really helped because we yeah. didn't pay um, any salaries. So if you couldn't live for a year on your own, we probably weren't going to hire you unless mom and dad could chip in and keep you going. And I remember coming down the elevator when I was working at Aetna, there was plenty of free food, so you could just eat at the office the yep, whole day. Absolutely. So, yeah. yep. I was going to ask you if you still eat uh, Frosted Flakes out of a mixing bowl. No, I don't. Not anymore. No. It's too bad. Back, 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 to <laughs> Mark's, back to Mark's question, though. I think Ken had thrown out something like, what, eight, 18 to 20 brokers were controlling some like 20% of the Valley's market share? I forget what that is. Well, I think originally... Uh, we stayed at about 12 brokers for a long period of time, yeah. and then gradually built up a little bit when we moved over to uh, uh, our new office on Technology Drive. But uh, we did dominate the marketplace. Uh, Chambers knows better the percentages. No, I don't recall. But, uh, I'm getting too old for this stuff. But, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but we, we had a good, we had a good good bite of it. Yeah. And we <clears> tracked. And we tracked. We had people. Uh, we had a good system, a good tracking system, and product availability system. And this is back in the day when uh, we didn't have, um, we had fax machines and that was one way to get brochures, but typically you had to go over to a developer's office and call first and they'll have a brochure out on the counter for you before yeah. you turn. Yeah. So it was really a, a hands-on business where you had to, today it's everything's electronic and easy, but in those days you were, you had to be organized. You're in the car a lot, you know, driving around. That's why the cell phones in the cars were so fabulous. I mean, Jerry Ingalls and I had the first two with, uh, I think, along with Chuck Dennis Ketter, uh -huh. way back when, we were in the old Coal Banker building. So yeah. they would save you a lot of time and effort picking things up. I remember being on the tour with you, and we were looking at some land. I think where NVIDIA is now. And you're like, you know, would you guys be interested in it? And I'm like, well, I, I don't know. He goes, well, I go, how much? He goes, let me find out right now. And he you know, grabs the phone and calls. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool because I didn't have a phone at the time yeah. and like solved that problem right that away. Was a, it was a huge device. It was like the one in our, our homes, the big thing on the trunk. And so, yeah. Well, I think when I first met Dennis, he had a, a diesel Mercedes, the big one, and he had a, it was a radio phone. It wasn't the cell phones. It was a radio phone. Yeah, it was two and, buttons, yeah, two it, channels. I remember he was telling me at 12 o'clock at night when he's sitting home, you could hear guys calling their girlfriends, not their <laughs> wives, and different things going on. Because you were sharing, it was like a... You, you know, could hear Dick and John talking all the time. Right. Oh, yeah, they were on it all the time, yeah. Oh, were they? No secrets in those days. Two channels, that was it. Yeah. And the cell phones came out around 84. Perry, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, 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 just making sure, folks. Yeah. But the cell phones came out, and it became, of course, those are... Uh, you're on your own. You're, you're on. There's no not a party line, but uh, uh, I think I said, well, I have the same phone number that I had in '84. I haven't changed it. Wow. So for a long time you had to stay with a provider, but now you can just switch your phone to any provider. So nice. It's a lot easier. Yeah. Nice. Um, well, can we back up a little bit to the beginning? Like I'm scared. But go ahead. <laughs> okay. How, how did you get into real estate to begin with? How did that start? Because I, you were you were in the military. Yeah. In Vietnam. Yeah. Became a commercial pilot for a while? Yeah, I got out and got in the airlines. I got lucky. Eastern Airlines took us right away, no matter where we were. And there were about 10 of us that were POWs that were going through pilot training in uh, Florida. 
Um, the uh, Borman was the chairman of the board of Eastern. He was the, one of the astronauts, so he was a, okay. a pro Air Force guy, good Air Force guy. And so we went through there. Go ahead. And getting to the commercial real estate, how you got here thing. I mean, maybe from like high school through to uh, the foray into commercial real estate is helpful for both you guys, just because I think that's a big part of the story mm-hmm. that I, as a younger person, get a lot out of. I mean, I've heard about you. I've spent time having lunch with Kent, and I think it's super interesting being, in my case, 37 and looking at what you guys did by 37. I feel like I'm behind the curve on life and business stuff a little bit, but I think it's good just contextualization for folks that might not have worked with you and are maybe a decade or two behind um, where, where, where you are in the real estate game. You want me to start? Please. Um, high school down in Los, West Los Angeles, came up to San Jose State. I wanted Air Force ROTC because I thought I wanted to fly airliners, airplanes. And um, went through ROTC, <clears throat> went in the military because everyone had to at those days. And uh, spent six years in Vietnam, came back, got onto Eastern Airlines. And uh, just before they had more trouble than they knew what to do with, it was badly managed. I, I don't think it was Borman's fault. I think the unions just destroyed the company. But anyway, it was so uh, <clears throat> got set up. I was in the right seat of a Lockheed Electra flying the shuttle run out of New York and LaGuardia. Uh, great job. Unfortunately, the Egyptians decided to go back into the Sinai and, and in 74, October, and we all got laid off in January of, of uh, I'm 73, and we all got laid off in January of 74. So I'm on the bottom list of 550 guys, and they, they said, we'll see you in five years. So oh, I got packed up and came to California. So. so you had nothing, you were out of a job at that point? Totally, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So how did you go from unemployed to... Well, I had uh, one of the things that people had told me is don't go to work in a corporation, get a job doing something that you get paid for your own success. In other words, stockbroker, uh, maybe in those days life insurance was a popular thing. Mm-hmm. And commercial real estate was another one. So my uncle knew one guy in the business. I talked to him and McMillan Moore Buchanan, remember that name, Bill Moore was my fraternity brothers. Talked to him. Okay. Got to Grubb and Ellis, talked to them, and met Bill Curtis way back when. And then somehow Greg Davies found my name. His brother put him on to me, and he found me, and I went and interviewed with Greg. And they had, Cobalt Banker had the best setup for what I wanted to do. So. And Greg was running that office? He was that? a sales manager, yeah, he was, number two. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. So you got into that sales at that point in time? And yeah, early 74. Yeah, I got there in March and joined him. Uh, I think I started in March with them, yeah. So what was it like then, going becoming a broker at that point in time? Uh, very challenging. There was a recession going on. Okay. We were losing people left and right. I think there were probably 40 or 50 people in the office. It was down to 30 by the time 74 was over in 75. Okay. People couldn't do small deals. They all had, the, they all had these egos of doing large deals. And the smart guys were the ones that were, would step back and, and chase the little bunnies and make the, make the small deals and pay the bills. And of course, being a new guy, that's all you did anyway, was multi-tenant right. little stuff, so mm-hmm. it was easy. Yeah. Totally. It's probably true today. <laughs> it, 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 I don't think it changes at all. Yeah. yeah, I mean, all these big deals can go bad right. very quickly, yeah. so yeah. To show you how bad it was at Coal Banker, mm-hmm. my first full year, 75, 1970, I was fifth in the office doing multi-tenant. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. So, and I didn't make very much, maybe 40 grand or something total. That's how bad it was at Cobalt Banker in those days. Yips. Okay. 
Um, well, so at some point from there, CPS came about. Tell us how and, that. And before we get into CPS, let's okay. also get a little bit of Ken's background. And so the, to this point, if you're a listener, you might not understand how the two are linked. Um, uh, both have been brokers in the Valley for uh, multiple decades, seen their ups and downs. Um, both have military backgrounds that when it's appropriate, hopefully we can get into a little bit. Um, but Kent was actually the first hire of, I believe, CPS, and that that's where their two histories kind of like merged, I guess. But uh, maybe before we get into that, um, same question for Kent, where'd you start off and how did you ultimately get up to the commercial real estate doorstep here? Uh, Cupertino High School, <clears throat> San Jose State, ROTC, uh, Army for a couple of years. And um, when I got out of the Army, uh, one to jump, when you're in Vietnam, you don't know what time it is. You know, well, you know what time it is, but you know what day it is. So you're working all the time. I was in the cavalry unit. So uh, get <clears throat> back to uh, California and uh, wanted to get a, a quick job. And I went to the, these employment agency over in the Alameda. They had these old Victorian houses over there. And these gals would operate it. They have three by five cards. And Lockheed would call and say, I have an opening for an engineer at this price level, et cetera, et cetera. So they look at my resume, which is like three sentences, and um, the gal was pretty smart. She said, you know, there's a, a manager trainee program at Standard Oil, and so why don't you go over there and I'll call ahead. So I, that's uh, Azaray and Sunel Street, Sunel Street, an old bulk plant, and I, they expected me. I had my only suit on, and uh, Jerry Moon was the district manager. He calls me in his office, and he looks at my resume. Oh, you're in the Army, huh? I said, yes, sir. So I was a captain back in War II. I was in the artillery for 30 minutes. He tells me about his experiences, and then he looks at his watch. He says, oh, damn, i got to go to a meeting. Can you start Monday? So <laughs> that's how it started for getting into business. But uh, Standard Oil had a great program for a young guy. You go up to the oil rigs, you go to the county, and you do different things. And then I was a salesman selling bulk plants, or selling bulk, uh, tank plants. But uh, my buddy, my roommate from college, said they, Signetics was hiring. That was an integrated circuit company. And uh, in 1970, they went over and interviewed, and they got, I was making five, I think 5,000 uh, bucks at Standard Oil, maybe 4,500. 4, and houses in Silicon Valley would cost $20,000 back then? Cheaper than that, actually. <laughs> but, uh, at any rate, uh, um, I interviewed and was hired by Signetics, and I worked there for almost 10 years. Ended up being their number one salesman during my last year there, and I made 145,000 bucks that year, which was big money in 1980, I thought, for me. It not still for, is. Not for some other yeah. people, but uh, at any rate, uh, Chambers was a neighbor of mine. We both built houses on, on Hutchinson Road, and uh, he'd stop by occasionally and flash his pay cards, and he was making like three or four times what I was making in technology. So he's humble even back then. <laughs> so uh, uh, I interviewed a co-op banker, and uh, it's, I was going to be starting in December probably. Um, but Chambers called me and says, hey, I'm leaving Cowell. I'm going to go to a new company. So you, either, you can stay with Cowell, or you can go with me to the new company. And so I said, it's you I know, not the not the company. So uh, I came over in March of '81, and that's how I got started in real estate. And was there like a fork and knife test you put him through? No, no actually not. I, he had enough money. I wasn't worried about him, <laughs> and he'd been in sales, so he was fine. He just had to learn real estate, you know, so it worked out. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Um, 
So you started the company. There was three of you at that point in time? No, no, no. no. Actually, yeah. Joe Callahan was at, at Coble Banker when I was there. And Joe uh, Joe left sometime in the late mid to late 70s. He was working with Lee Cash on Open Prudential and Moffett Park. And He's a developer then? Joe, Joe was, right? Joe was a broker with us. Oh, he was? Okay. Yeah, Callahan. Callahan, Pence, and Solindex, CPS. Okay. Okay. And George Pence had been with Speaker for a while, and Ned, and he had parted ways. So, George. So they... Uh, Joe left and started CPS and started laying out Moffett Park today because it was all flat fields, no roads anywhere on the backside of it. Wow. Okay. So that's how it started. And Greg and I were going to, Greg Davies and I were going to leave Coal Banker in um, this 81, 80, 81, start our own company because Coal Banker just wouldn't cover your backside. You know, if someone cheated you on a commission and it was, you should have been paid, they wouldn't support you because they didn't want to get a lawsuit type thing, especially if it was just a small amount. $10,000, nothing big, you know. Nothing, nothing big to them. Nothing big to them, yeah, correct. Exactly, yeah. And how old were you guys both in that time frame, like back in 1981, was it? I'm, I'm sorry. Well, when I left, 81, I left in 81, you know. Jeez, I don't know, what was I? You 40? Probably, probably 40, because I think I was 40, yeah. 38, okay. maybe. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, just to have the fortitude to open your own business is something I step back, and I'm like, today most people say... There's no way I can do yeah, that. Yeah, I think I was 33 when I started a coal banker, give or take. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, it's wow. late, starting late, yeah. So those guys were in the development business also. Well, that's, what, that's what Joe and George did. Okay. Right? They developed buildings out in Moffett Park and, and, uh, and Marriott. They did a bunch of stuff over there. And Kaz, Kaz bailed early. I don't think Joe said Kaz just didn't, wasn't a team player. He wanted to do his own thing, which is fine. And were you guys involved in the development, or were you guys were just doing brokerage? Not then. When uh, Greg joined, I think, in December of 80, and I joined in March of 81, we had a big commission come in through Coal Banker, and we didn't want to lose it. Okay. Greg and I were sharing it. So uh, I stuck around to get the commission. Then Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and then, yeah, Greg got right into development with Joe, and I was in charge of running the brokerage company. Okay. Which Greg had... Uh, was my advisor all the way through it. They had three people there already that uh, okay. Joe had hired. So we okay. he was my first, Kent was my first outside hire, but I inherited three people when I got there. Got it, okay. And, and Kent, the, deci- the deciding jump to go to commercial real estate was you just thought, hey, I can make more compensation. That's what the compelling factor was. Well, working for a corporation, it was that industry was a startup industry that in those days, I learned yeah. a lot. But <clears throat> still, you had a, a salary and a commission, uh, but uh, you didn't really have the independence that you'd have as a broker. And uh, when at Standard Oil, you had almost no independence, and then in, in the technology business, you had some independence. Yeah. But in brokerage, if you if you have to live off what you earn, it, it, then you're independent. So uh, there's yeah, incentive. That was an attraction. Yeah, that was an attraction for me. Thank you. Okay, so um, you're running the brokerage group at that point in time, and then things keep expanding. You just keep hiring more and more people. You guys have more and more market share. Um, at some point, I remember you told me a story about someone went bankrupt or everyone went bankrupt, and you didn't. Maybe I have this wrong. Like the development side go broke or something. And, oh, oh and yeah, you well, were we, like, got, we got caught with our pants down in uh, in one of and those, we don't have to one of those cycles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we got but, we we got hurt pretty bad. Yeah, we, but your attitude about it, I thought, was pretty interesting. You're like, I think you said, like, I'm not going to sit here and cry my beer. I'm going to yeah. get up and 
Well, that's when the brokerage company kind of kept the company afloat for a while. It did. Okay. Because yeah. uh, we got just had built too many things, too many places. Yeah. And Joe did. We did. I mean, we're all part of it. So, got it. We're all greedy, excited. Thought it was going to be wonderful. You know. It happens to all of us. Boy, it does it. Oh yeah, it's easy timing, to get timing. mesmerized by everything. So, yep. but. No, I was going to say, I mean, and we kind of glossed over those, those listening can't see. We had a general outline here that we've danced around a little bit on, but I think to me, that was a good foray into, I think why you two are both compelling to me from what I see on the outside. And, and I don't know you Dennis that well, but getting to know Kent a little later, um, definitely look up to like the life experience. And I think some of that is informed by adversity from what I can gather in Kent, your case, like maybe through the military a little bit. And I think something that was glazed over in the respective introductions was they both, the commonality is both Kent and Dennis served in Vietnam. Uh, Dennis was in an F-4 Phantom in the sky. Kent was in a tank on the ground. Um, slightly different time frames, but uh, Kent... Uh, basically received the Silver Star twice for actions in Vietnam, went on to become a general in the United States Army in a reserve capacity, but still that's a pretty crazy life trajectory with its own um, stories I'm sure that we can't go all over within this podcast. Conversely, Dennis, who was flying in the sky, who maybe surface might tell you is a more chill Vietnam experience, was actually a prisoner of war for five and a half years at the Hanoi Hilton. I don't know to what degree you're comfortable or desire to go into that right now around this table, but I, as a layperson, look at that as like there's some serious life grit that's obtained or some anecdotal observations you can reflect on, you know, looking over the ocean right now that might be useful to people who are younger or facing their own form of adversity. So let me just kind of be quiet and listen if there's anything in response. Uh, boy, that's a good question. I, I'm not sure I'm smart enough to answer that thing, but we... The, uh, the the crew, the guys that were there with me, uh, they all had something they hung on to, whether it was family or religion or they were upset with the U.S. government or whatever it was. They had different things they hung on to. And we were all together in small groups, sometimes large groups, and so it was pretty easy to keep command control. Um, we only had one or two people that were jerks. Everyone else was pretty good and followed the command structure, so... Uh, one guy'd be down one day. We'd go pump him up. We'd tell stories, tell movies. Uh, we got to know each other better than our our wives knew us. It was really nothing else to talk about all day. Right. <laughs> so you think of something else, and you come up with something that night. You know, so. Yeah. Anyway, I I don't have any great yeah. deep penetrating thing. Uh, everyone yeah. did pretty well. I wasn't any more special than anybody else out there. But even in the context of that, uh, getting caught with the pants down comment you'd made earlier. I mean, do you think there's some resilience? That, that you earned or, or that was thrust upon you in that experience that was useful or it was really its own thing and you don't even think about it? Well, I, I wanted to catch up. I knew I was behind yeah. by five, six years yeah. of everybody that had gone to school with. So yeah, I was very motivated. And when the airline thing fell apart, I was devastated. So came out to California and I just saw an opportunity. Struggled at first, it was very difficult. I'm not a natural cold caller, it just wasn't that easy. But I, got, I went to a John Shaw's house one night, one day for a party during the summer. John was the top dog at Cobalt Banker at the time. Okay. And uh, one of the guys there said, God, I'm so busy on these, this 3000 Scott Boulevard 
coal project. I just, okay. I need help. And, I, and my little ears picked up and I said, well, I'd love to help you. And that was it. And that's the start that really got me going summer of 74. Yeah. Never look back. Yeah. It's oh, fabulous. wow. It's fabulous. Thank you. That's yeah. that good. Now, Ken, so. do you have anything similar? Well, yeah, obviously in Vietnam, uh, you know, between the uh, national bird there, which is referred to as a mosquito, uh, <laughs> uh, nighttime, I mean, you, you were just you were on a short timer's calendar. I remember stepping off the airplane in Tatsunut and when I first arrived and air conditioner went off and all of a sudden 70 degrees turns into 100 degrees and the smell of a third or fourth world country kind of cat grabs you and you're sitting there saying, geez, 365 more days of this. But uh, uh, it does impact you. Um, you always have that, you have that fear of a bullet hitting you. Because when you're out in the jungle all the time, people are getting shot. It, it's it's something that uh, that uh, at the time it doesn't bother me now. It, uh, no one's shooting at me anymore, but uh, uh, it does it does kind of stay with you. The, uh, the, the follow on to another question you had, um, we talked about independence in this business at brokerage. So I stayed in reserve, and I was fortunate that the like Dennis was supportive. <clears throat> I had good runners like Scott Lampson, uh, Sherman Chan, um, um, different guys, Dick Scott, uh, so I could go off and do stuff in the military. Um, and my final four or five years in the reserves, what, what I was in the Pentagon, so I was gone sometimes for two weeks at a time. And if you have a runner, you just be fair to him and he's going to be fair to you and, and you keep rolling along. So that was a good, good thing for me. And Dennis, you put up with that because you just put numbers on the board? Oh yeah, no, we're very supportive of that. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you both. I appreciate. It. Anyways, just thinking about adversity through some of the questions Mark was asking, and I just had to, for my own benefit, yeah. ask. Because there is a lot of adversity in the business. Yeah. Like, there's oh yeah, super high and then it's bad, and you know, um, but you seem to get your hands on enough big clients like, um, like Cisco. Yeah. Can you talk about a little bit about that, about how that came about? And There's a story. So Cisco was incredibly unusual. We, Heather and I had had uh, done a little deal called Echelon, and uh, uh, the, um, Ken Oshman was the CFO or CEO of the company. From He was from Rome, the old, or in uh, Santa Clara Marriott Park. Oh. And they'd sold the business to, 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 I think, one of the German companies. Yeah. And uh, so he started a new startup. I think Mike Markle was on the board. And so somehow we, I got the call from this young lady who was going to do the market, going to do his work for him as far as real estate. Yeah. So I brought Heather along for the interview, and we won the contest. And it took two years. We finally put him into uh, uh, John Lovewell and Chop Keenan's buildings up in where the old Fairchild plant used to be in Palo Alto, Fairchild Drive. Right. Yeah. Right at the middle of the earthquake. That earthquake hit. I was in the car with them when the quake hit, and the walls of the building came down. This is the 89 quake? 89 quake. Oh my right gosh. in the middle okay. of the World Series, yeah. yeah. So six months later, the DevCon finished the building when they moved in. So Heather and I took a cake and a bottle of champagne over to the, the CEO, CFO, just a wonderful guy, straight shooter. And he says, well, I just had lunch with an old friend of mine from, from Rome, David Ring. And David's just got a job starting at a startup company doing manufacturing, but they told him he had to do real estate too, and he doesn't know a thing about real estate. 
So I, I gave him your name and number. Now we're in Palo Alto, okay? Yeah. We look at each other and we said, well, give me his number, I'll call him. Well, he'll call you, don't worry. I said, well, we're here and we're free this afternoon. Maybe we can go up and make his day. He gives us the number, we call the guy, boom, we go over. 10 years we spent with Cisco, just wow. because we took a bottle of champagne and a cake to, to a customer. It was incredible luck. Never interviewed, Cornish and Kerry put him at a building for yeah. a five-year deal and they were into the six months of the five years. And of course, brokers, and I've done it, you, you slap your hands and say, okay, I'll see you in four years and we'll start looking for a new place. Big mistake. Big oh my mistake. gosh. Trodson, I think Trodson was one of the brokers. Interesting. And I love him, he's a great guy. But uh, boy, that was a, and I've made the same mistake. I mean, mistake. that growth that that company had oh. is like, was unprecedented at that point in time? Second yeah. fastest growing company next to Microsoft in history, yeah. At the time. It's time. Yeah. Okay. But were people more accessible? I mean, could you actually just roll up to a CFO's office and get FaceTime? Mm -hmm. I mean, people talk about the Valley being different then than today. Is it, was it really? No, not particularly. You, you didn't get that high up usually. But, yeah. you know, we got down to, and this, David Ring just was so excited to say this, was a big smile on his face. And he trusted us because of the job we'd done for Echelon, and Echelon guy was very pleased with what we did, very happy, very gracious. So, so talk about the growth of that company and what they did and like some of the deals you did, because you dealt with some um, difficult people, like all that land in North San Jose with uh, Mr. Ariaga, right? And, you know, North San Jose was... Uh, the, like you did like a huge, like hundreds of acres, acres yeah, like... Yeah. Extraordinarily big. Yeah. Oh, the, they grew. They're growing rapidly. And then the first deal was we were with them, and uh, a young lady named Nancy Borales came in and took over real estate from from uh, David. And she was a sweetheart. And Heather and she got along great, so that helped a lot. And we were trying to expand next door in Menlo Park there, off of Lincoln. I think it was Lincoln Avenue, whatever it's called. Lincoln Properties owned the building. I'm sorry. Okay. Louis Belmonte. And uh, behind it, Tig Tarleton was building some buildings, and he. Tig was the kind of guy that hated brokers. And he was quoting a dollar and a quarter rent, triple net, with, I think in those days, $15 TIs. Wow. And she, the treasurer, who Nancy reported to, said, I don't want to pay that kind of rent. They're paying like 75 cents where they are now on Willow Road. It was Willow Road, right. that's what it was. And I said, well, what's going on? Well, he keeps calling the chairman. He won't work through us. And I said, well, do you want to scare him a little bit? And the guy says, yeah, sure, how? Well, I'm going to put Nancy in the car, and we're going to go across the bay to Fremont, Newark. And we're going to meet every developer over there, and I'm going to make sure that, at least in two of the times, the same contractor that's doing TIG's buildings is there. And we want to meet him. <laughs> Before we got back, TIG was calling, screaming at, at the chairman of the board. Finally, <laughs> finally, he would deal with us. And we made the deal, and I think we did 95 cents instead of a buck and a quarter which was huge pre-IPO. Treasurer was dancing on the table, he was so happy. It's gonna be huge by next December. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, 95 cents. And, 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 oh yeah, and so the, you know, the and, and Heather said, you know, well we probably ought to get options on the other two buildings. And, and I'm, I'm going, nobody could grow that fast. So we said, well let's try. So we got options on the other two buildings. And they hadn't even moved in the first building and we exercised the option on the second one. Oh my gosh. So we started construction on that. Did he pay you on all this? He did. Oh, that's yeah. good. He whined and snivelled a lot, but he paid us. That's okay. It's, it's good. You know you're getting a good fee if people are whining and snivelling <laughs> a lot, so that's good. So. so then from then, I mean, how much space do they ultimately have in San Jose? I mean, 
Like, it, it seemed like every building out there. So, I, I, I don't know. They have, it's rough, I don't know. I, I really don't remember, but I do remember that as they were trying to expand, we kept trying to find. Their center of core was Mellow Park. Okay. And you, we used to do the maps, the, what we call those? Measle maps, where you put little red dots for every employee lives. Oh, yeah, yeah. But once you start to get bigger, this is before we had you know computers and things. Uh, and uh, we started to notice that it was moving south every time we got a new building. And we're building here. And then they took a couple buildings from John Sobrato over off of Ellis and okay. Middlefield and blah, 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 blah. So I had Nancy in the car one day, and I'm trying to, she says, Dennis, we are not going to San Jose. Board says, stay north of San Jose, Santa Clara North. There was nothing. Terry Rose had a little bit of space there on right. his Garrett project, but it wasn't really large enough. This is like early 90s now, right? Yeah. Mid-90s. Yeah. yeah. I think they'd gone, they'd done IPO by then. Probably. Okay. Yeah, early, early 90s. So uh, I'm really confused because we're not going to make this. So I, I put Nancy in the car and I'm showing her space and she doesn't know where she is. Mm-hmm. So I drive her around and we go down Tasman right by where the stadium, football stadium is now. Right. Tasman's not open yet. The bridge is done, but they've got <laughs> barriers crazy. across the bridge. So I go out earlier and I slide the barriers just wide enough to get my car through it. There's nobody there. <laughs> so I got Nancy and I'm showing her this and showing her that. And yeah. I go up over the top of the bridge and I stop the car. And there's these huge fields with nothing but yellow mustard plants everywhere. It's just gorgeous. It's spring. Yes. It's beautiful. I said, how about this? She says, oh my God, what are you, this is perfect. And I sat there, she said, and looks at me, she says, is this San Jose? I said, yeah, John Mozart owns it. Yeah, San Jose. Okay. And it was the chuff of the stuff that John had bought from Ken Small, I believe. Okay, got it. It was a big so, chunk of it, so. Interesting, all right. And they took it, and then they jumped. And then we did, I had been working with the state of California for a long time on the, okay. the piece of land over farther on Tasman, so. We got that later. And you worked on that account for like 10 years. 10 right? years, yeah. Okay, that's a long yeah. time. So. so you mentioned Mozart, you mentioned Sobrato, Ariaga. Um, you've, you've been managed to deal with a lot of different people. You've done a lot of stuff with Mozart and those guys, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Anything memorable that stands out through that? In reference to de- oh, yeah. deals you've done that are, you oh, know. Oh, yeah, like you, you know, Ariaga. Everyone's got an Ariaga story. <laughs> But they're all good. Oh, this one's great. This <laughs> one's great. So I have a gentleman in the car named Eli Harari. And Eli is the founder of SanDisk, what ultimately became SanDisk. Okay. But it was a startup at the time. And we had, Heather and I had done a deal with Eli before on another company that didn't make it, had some problems. Yeah. So we get, I'm showing him space, and one of the buildings is over there on J Street, right off of San Tomas in 101. And it's the Taco Bell's owned by Dick and John. And he says, you know, I, I, I want to meet John Ariaga. I heard a lot about him. And I go, okay, you know, <laughs> here goes the old cap on the commission. I can see that coming for sure. So I, we get over there. We got to make an appointment with John. You know, John, it's just no appointments. Just Chambers should just be there. I'll be there. Don't worry about it. So I said, Ellie, here's what's going to happen. Okay, we're going to go in there. And he's going to be the nicest guy in the world. And he's going to tell you that I'm the best broker he's ever seen. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. Then he's gonna he's gonna ask he's gonna ask you a few questions. Then he's gonna ask me to go sit on the couch in the back of the room, still in the room. Okay. He's gonna ask you some more questions. Then he's gonna tell me to go out in the lobby and wait for you. And it's exactly what happened. <laughs> and I said, Ellie, what you gotta do is he's gonna want stock warrants and stuff. You gotta make sure you could afford to do it. He, but you're, you'll get a good deal because he's always great at that. But he's gonna want warrants and the stock. Okay. 
So about an hour later, Ellie comes out to the car and he's all red. He's one of these guys he gets red in the face when he's embarrassed. And I look at him and I've just got a shitty grin on my face. I said, <laughs> Ellie, what happened? Well, Denise, I got the, I, I, uh, I, we, we got the deal. We got a good deal. How many warrants? You tell anybody I kill you. 60,000 <laughs> warrants for a, Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. I, think, I believe that was the number. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. Well, back then it was worth nothing. Pennies. But it's worth a lot today. It's worth <laughs> a lot today. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, That's a crazy. Dick and Jones story. So, anyway. That's good. Um, before I, I, I talked to Sutton yesterday, and he definitely said to say hello, but he says, every time he sees you, he thanks you. He says, I have my house. I have my vacation house. I have a house in Hawaii. Debt-free, all because of Dennis and the partnerships that we got to all get in. So yeah. tell, how did that come about? Like, you guys were in so many deals across the valley. Like, well, you mean the partnerships or the... Um, he said that you would always go in and you partner with guys like Deke or Mozart and you put money in deals and, you know, or yeah, Dostart and guys well, like that. So, the yeah. developers, when they were smaller, were really good at that. And they'd take a lot of us in uh, as partners, like you guys do on your stuff. Same, mm -hmm. same thing. And sometimes they'd want a half a million dollars or a big, big number of dollars, okay. which I really didn't want to take that big a bite. But yeah. uh, so we'd bring guys in like Sutton and stuff and other guys in the office and share, or we'd put them in, if the deals were easier to get in, 100,000 or something, we'd bring them in. They, they kept everybody busy and people made money doing that. Yeah. Sutton was very aggressive. That's what I liked about him. He always wanted to be involved in the deals. Peter Powell, we did several with Peter. He did. So, yeah, a lot of different guys. Great people. I mean, really, that's what I live off today are these guys. Dollinger's fabulous. They're all just great guys to deal with. So. What about so. Dave Brown? Dave didn't do that with us. Yeah, no, I understood. Uh, in getting amped up for this, we sat with a, a number of other CPS folks, and uh, for whatever reason, we just said, hey, were there some people you guys had executed a lot with or maybe thought well of? Named Dave Brown came up. I didn't know if there was a story there uh, to maybe tease out, but figured I'd ask. No, I just did a lot of deals with Dave, but uh, nothing particular. Dave was kind of his own boss and a nice guy. Had been always very fair to me. But uh, yeah, Chip McDonald did a lot of stuff with Dave. Yeah. In fact, there was a piece on 680 that I think Chip sold that 20-acre piece three or four times. Yeah. A couple times to Dave. Yeah. <laughs> Heather uh, Carl Coombs, company he worked for Land Research. Land Research. So Heather had a she had cold call Carl Kuntz who and Heather's trying to stay out of the conversation but we're going to pull her in. But, uh, <laughs> big guy. He was the operations officer in a, in a small company uh, that was going to grow and um, so we started looking for properties and they they wanted thirty they were in about five or six thousand they wanted thirty uh, thirty thousand feet but then they wanted. Maybe sixty or ninety thousand feet, and we were kind of scratching our heads. But we went over to Fremont, and um, on Warm Springs Boulevard, S.K. Brown had a thirty thousand foot building. He had three thirty thousand feet buildings, and they needed to occupy the first one in thirty days. And this is a fab operation, and this is probably nineteen eighty five, eighty six, and. S.K. Brown says, we can, we can do this for you. And this was, I mean, S.K. Brown, those, they were wild men. Um, and they put that thing together, I think, in 29 days. And then they started taking, they ended up taking 90,000 feet in three buildings in probably 
six months, I guess. Hmm. So you run into a lot of interesting things like that. Uh, it, the key is to get in, in front of somebody, and uh, Heather was able to create a relationship with this guy, who's a gruff, kind of a gruff guy. I will tell the story. Carl Coons was a very gruff guy, big, and he never let us know during the negotiation process that his style of negotiation was we'd sit there and we'd wait for Carl to say, okay, we can, we can do that detail or that. And he'd just sit there with his arms folded and he wouldn't answer. And he wouldn't respond in any, to any of the least comments or anything. And so Kent and I went out of that negotiation and we thought, Jeez. and he tells us in the car, he is a professor at Santa Clara University teaching negotiations, and his negotiation style was just to sit there with his arms folded and not say a word, and it was very effective, and he got everything he wanted <laughs> as a result of it. We both work with somebody like that. <laughs> <laughs> I hope the Scotsman isn't listening. <laughs> Heather was an unusual from the standpoint as a broker. She could tear a lease apart and the attorney was sitting there with it. It was unbelievable. In a negotiation, I don't think attorneys liked Heather too much. <laughs> well, she did, she did uh, leases from McCandless before she joined us, so oh. she really had it down pat. Oh, you did? Yeah, I used her. She was fabulous. You know. It felt like people were much tougher on leases, like every time I remember. Horrible. Broker's nightmare. Horrible. Well, they, they had stories. Like, Dennis would always create checklists. We had a checklist for leases, for say. Who would have thought with a pilot? Yeah. So, so at any rate, um, but we monitored the law firms, and there are only, I guess in those days, in the 80s, there were only five or six law firms you dealt with, and usually three of those were the majority of the leases were done with. And, uh, and there was that, this one law firm, it was mentioned, but I won't say the name again, but uh, they had a, they had a, I guess on a computer or somewhere or another, they had a, a lease that, and they sent it out. And, um, and then, uh, or they had copies of leases from other, other law firms and when they come in, they had standard answers. And so uh, somebody in our office was representing a tenant and the answers came back just strange. They weren't matching up with the lease. And it, well, what they would do is, they were so used to that, the lease that would come from that law firm, they just crank in the standard answers they'd always put, but they'd hold the lease for a week and say, it took us a week to put this thing together, and then charge their clients for that, that number. We, we might have to block the name of that law firm out, I think. <laughs> so at, at, at any rate, uh, uh, you see stuff like that happen. And I think Heather was, one of the, was the one that picked that up from some law firm in Palo Alto, but it was embarrassing for that law firm. Anyway. I think the problem is some law firms wanted to win everything. And other law firms wanted to make a fair deal for their client. And that's where they just wanted to win everything for their clients. They didn't care what the developer got. And I remember dealing with John Michael Cervato's side. And it got to the point where they would, same thing as last time, and John would say, yeah. Because they had already negotiated the lease totally. So they yes. covered everything. John Michael was just fabulous. He, he, he covered was, all that. He yeah. could handle all that. I, it, I, it drove me crazy. So Heather was trying to shy away from this conversation, but I've got to ask. I mean, because like we're very much counting on you being part of this discussion because you played a big role here. Um, I mean, but just being 
a woman in real estate, did you ever think of yourself that way? Or was it just like, I want to go in, make money? Like, where was your head at for this time frame? Like, you were in, you wanted to make money. Uh, you bust the door open. Was it hard? Was it easy? I mean, like, I just wanted to ask. Well, I had a bit of background, obviously. I worked for McCandless, <clears throat> doing marketing on their, uh, their properties. And... Good. When, so coming with leasing and marketing background on properties that were owned by McCandless, I would see the brokers come in and I'd see the commission checks go out the door and I was on a salary and I thought, hmm, <laughs> maybe I could do this on the other side of the table and that's when the opportunity to join CPS came up. and. A woman in the industry, I didn't look at myself as a woman in the yeah. industry, I looked at myself as a broker, uh, essentially with all of the uh, guys in the office, and that was a camaraderie that uh, was phenomenal. And, and Joe, Joe, to his credit, we had, when I joined, there were two women <clears throat> and, and one guy, I mean, and then so when Heather joined, it was, it was like, yeah. and we had a few more young ladies and it, was, and it worked out fine. It was very, but it was very unusual for that time well, in the industry, right? There was not that many women there in the business. That many women. Correct. And those that were in uh, the business were focused more on office, and what we were focusing on was more uh, industrial, if you will, R and D, and not pure office. Uh, for for me, at least. There was one other interesting thing regarding women in the office. Uh, Chambers, uh, the way he ran the office, uh, he listened to the brokers, and if there was a problem, he'd know about it. And we had a new hire who came in from a different company, an experienced broker, and, and he was creating problems with some of the female brokers, uh, and they were complaining. And Dennis uh, fired him. Done. Guy was out. So um, the, the climate at, at CPS was... Uh, I'm not going to use the term pure, but it was respectful. Yeah, respectful, and, and people didn't matter the sex. Yeah, I mean, you just treat people the way you want to be treated. And Dennis said at that time he, he was the guy. He was the god of the of the brokerage house. All twelve of us. He was the, the, the big daddy, and he protect. But he'd cover your ass if there was a problem. He'd, he'd cover you. So was that guy named Jeffrey Epstein? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had a little airplane in an island out in the Caribbean, but uh, but it's. For a company to know that they're a team, to be a team, uh, you have to have leadership. Like in Vietnam, we had a saying, you can't manage somebody up a hill to die. You have to lead them up. That was amongst the lieutenants. Yeah. And you have to, 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 to create leadership and bonding in a company, you have to have that style that Chambers brought forward to the company. So that, that was very critical, I thought. And, and outside looking in, you guys, I mean, because I see a lot of other brokerage firms, but you guys really operated as a team. Yeah. You weren't like, you know, locking your desk at night because you're worried somebody's going to go through it. Yeah. There wasn't all these internal battles or, I mean, literally fist fights in other firms that you hear about. Yeah, I've heard some great stories, yeah. 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 <laughs> but was that concerted or was it as easy as the realization you shared earlier, which is like part of why you left the prior firm, was to remedy that situation? Well, yeah, we had, it just, you just didn't lie to me. Yeah. That wasn't allowed. Didn't lie to anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Lie, cheat, or steal. It just wasn't tolerated. So. They used to have some wild open houses back in the early <laughs> days. And one of the open houses, I 
think it was Bishop Hawk, maybe they had this one, they had a mule, a pony, I think it was a mule. And you take, you get a volunteer, one of our support staff people, maybe the receptionist, get on the back of this pony or mule, and then a broker would have to drag this thing around this little racetrack, or it was a, a you know, it was an open field with some markers that you had to go, go around, like barrel racing or something. And there were some issues with, was between CPS and some other company, and we thought we had won. And there was a broker at the other house who was getting into the chamber's face, and they were kind of going at it. And uh, I'm sitting there thinking, this could get, this could be tough. I, I was moving up closer. I was going to take the guy out of the knee from back, because I could get him from behind, right? Well, it turns out street fighting was part of the camaraderie. Then they both started laughing, at, and then I was told later by Chambers that hey. We were in the fraternity together, and we were old buddies. And I had no idea that, that I thought it was a serious thing. But it was it, it to could have been. You, you know the individual, right? But, <laughs> but yeah, he was one of my fraternity brothers. Yeah. But uh, I, I mean, I'm sitting there, geez, if I had taken him out the knees, I would be lost. I mean, yeah. if I played football, I probably had bad knees anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the earlier conversation of just like, in a way, like how for its day, CPS was pretty progressive. There's a story that came to the surface uh, when we were talking to Dick Scott about a woman named Connie in an interview uh, where she, I think there was a dialogue and she walked out and then went to her car and then charged back into your office. I don't know if that's something worth... You know, I don't recall that. I, she was very tenacious. Yeah. Okay. She wouldn't take no for an answer, which, of course, I love. Yeah. So, yeah, no, she was very good. Okay. Yeah, Dick was right. That was a, she was tenacious as, as a... Dennis points out, but uh, what happened was she got in her car and then she started reviewing some notes that she had written down before the interview. And then she, as she told me, she put my hands on my waist and I just walked back in there and got in his face. <laughs> of course, now realizing that Chambers was eating it up because that's the kind of person that was I loved it, just loved it, yeah. yeah. But I mean, uh, something that really has come to the surface aside from the leadership and the ethos component that we've been nibbling around the edges of is from other people we reached out to this general acknowledgement that you're both very EQ, rich people. And I made the joke, I think, earlier about like a fork and knife test in hiring Kent. I mean, and it was earlier shared, some of the people that ran for both Kent, um, I think, I don't know if we talked about Jeff Houston too, and then we were the earlier remarks, but do you have fork and knife tests or like from a development leadership perspective, is it as simple as like the tenacity thing, the desire to succeed monetarily or just have that intrinsic motivation? Like, what are the, the softer things you looked for and tried to consciously cultivate within that culture? Well, let me tell you a couple hiring stories. And that may touch on it, but I'm not sure I'm going to answer your question directly. So Sherman Chan comes in, okay? You know, just the most lovable guy in the world. You just, nobody, Absolutely. Yeah. no one dislikes Sherman. And he's, I interview him. And then he, he goes home and he calls me later and says, I've got an offer from... I think it was Bishop Hawk or one of those guys, Blickman Turkus. And okay. they've offered me a job right now because I, I didn't hire him right away. And I want to see what he'd do. And he said, you know, I think I, uh, it's a pretty good deal and I think I'm going to have to take it. I said, well, good luck, Sherman. Wish you the best. Clicked up the phone. <laughs> About 30 minutes later, I, this, he, I get this call from Sherman. Well, maybe I was a little too aggressive about that. So he came back, we talked again, and we hired Just kidding. Him. Yeah. <laughs> But Houston was a piece of work. Houston, you know Jeff, he's just the most beautiful smile, just a great guy. And he comes in, he's spent his whole career from college at Club Med, teaching tennis. 
I said, I said, he was very tan. I said, Jeff, do we, I said, Jeff, do we have to do any kind of blood tests on you? And he broke up laughing, and we had a great time. So, but he was in my fraternity also after I left. He was. Yeah, much much later after I left. Yeah. Okay. He was Spartan also. Somebody introduced me to him and yeah. through that connection. What Chambers would do is if a new interviewee was coming in, you'd put him in the car and we'd drive around, maybe take him to lunch, which means you'd stop at a hot dog stand uh, kind of thing. But uh, Mike Michaels came up and he wanted, he'd heard from somebody that maybe his sister, that uh, you had to go talk to CPS. And so Dennis would put him in the front seat, I'd be in the back seat. And then we start asking questions. Uh, Michaels was another guy. He was a great guy, and uh, uh, and ended up being obviously very successful in the marketplace and in the, in the market. But uh, uh, I think we got him perspiring a little bit in the front yeah. end. But he he was tough and just hung in there and then came on board. And good man. Mm. And I always appreciate it. I know it's kind of a random rabbit hole. It's just something I think about of. Some very sophisticated people doing these big deals. Lots of people work, many don't. But to have those many people still in the business at a high level, I mean, something done right in terms of the screening mechanism. So, yeah, it's, it's hard to hire people, and it's yeah. you have to get the right people. So that's why Brett's still on probation <laughs> <laughs> for another twenty years. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I was trying to think. I, I had like one other yeah. not non sequitur, but. Um, I always remember, like, occasionally getting invited on your like, Cabo trip with the CPS guys. So, which, um, and you would always get up in the morning with a giant stack of books and magazines, and you'd sit at your palapa until like five o'clock, yeah. and you were always well read. Always, in, where did that all come from? How did I just know? had to wind down? It was the stresses. Like anybody in the business, it's so stressful. As Kent said, there's no salary. If you don't get the job done, if you don't win the deal, and I'd work seven days, six, seven days a week on getting prepared for things for the next day or the weekend or whatever. So it was always fun to go and relax and catch up on all the magazines or books I hadn't read. And I'd take a, a case of uh, Pacifico, 24 bottles, actually a large case, put it in a big <laughs> ice chest and put ice in it in the morning, drag it down to a palapa, clean it up the mess down there from the day before, and sit there and read books all day. And then haggle with the Guy's trying to sell you jewelry. Can you tell the silver jewelry story? Oh, that's that cool. And that is like one of the better so, stories I've heard in my life. Oh, it's fast, fabulous. <laughs> so at the end of the day, whichever day it was, hmm. these guys were bugging the hell out of me all day long. Good guys. And you just say, no, thank you, no, thank you. Finally, I said, okay, how much for the whole tray? And their English translation wasn't good. And the whole tray. And I'm going to hate Like all the jewelry. All the jewelry in the box. How much for the whole tray? And the box. And the box. Well, that box came later. First, you start with the whole jewelry. Okay. And, he, uh, and he'd run, run back to one of his buddies and talk, and they'd come back and he'd say, give me a number, whatever it was, you know, $400, $500. I said, no, no, I'll give you 100 I ended up buying twice now on two different trips. I'd, I'd buy a whole box, and I'd get the box thrown in free for $200. All this, and it all, of course, it turns green right away. It's just exactly, cheap. Yeah. But I'd take it back and give it to the employees in the office and give it to their kids little girls, and they loved it, you know, it was fun. <laughs> and it was chump change, but, you know, it was kind of fun. It was a, a good negotiating skill oh, right yeah, there, yeah, put yeah, to work. Yeah. <laughs> and talking about those trips, uh, motiv the motivation to make a certain level, a, a salary level, but the CPS would pay your way to Hawaii, 
Hawaii, it seemed like Hawaii was a primary destination, but some, one time we went to Arizona and Cabo, but uh, paid for the trip, paid for the rental car, uh, probably one meal a day thrown in, plus vouchers for breakfast, so maybe that's two, probably a golf game, a little tournament kind of thing thrown in, and I mean, they were just in six days, I mean, great trips. Yeah. I think the other brokerage companies were perished. Really perished, yeah, people focused. But Parrish did something similar. And we were like, Greg Davies ran that part without breaks. Did a great job on putting these parties together and stuff. And it was a big deal to to make the money and then get selected. And that was the big deal. I mean, um, I used to screw with some of the brokers, not to mention anything. There's a gal who left the company and went to another company. But we heard something about a dead fish in someone's. <laughs> but that wasn't this situation. Oh, okay. That was Chip McDonald. But uh, he got back at me. But. Uh, uh, we were down to the, that, at that point it was the top five. Then we ultimately went to uh, bigger levels and just make certain salary levels and you could go on the trip. Well, she, she was going to be the fifth person to go on this trip and it was a big deal. And uh, this was a guy who would take her shoes off in the conference room when we had a, a meeting with a client and I reached out to get my foot and pulled her shoes and then she couldn't find her shoes and we had the client in there. We just missed what it did. She had that personality. Well, we were in the car going back, and I just did, was on the phone. I said, I'm not using your name, but I, I said, you just got blown out of the deal. You're number, you're number six now. And she literally started to cry. And I said, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I take it back. <laughs> I mean, it was, it, it was just that kind of fun industry where you, you always were screwing around a little bit and having fun and, you know, kind of messing with people. Yeah. You know? No, and I mean, like... And apologies for like the non-linearity of this, but like I'm hearing you tell stories and negotiating with people for like you know Sherman Chan and stuff, <laughs> and just even day to day getting deals done with turf styles or the arms crossed and stuff. Um, this business is a lot about like working with and sometimes competing with other people. Um, part of that is negotiational styles. Um, I'm just thinking of your thing of like hanging up the phone on Sherman Chan. I mean, like, are there people in a way you've plagiarized your negotiation or deal structuring kind of brain after? I mean, I'm just thinking of all the people respectively around this table you've worked with or across the table from. Are there any uh, names of people, styles that, you know, books you read where you're just like, this kind of jives with me and helped you find your voice? I, I don't think so, no. Yeah. Um, some of the guys that had gone to Xerox, all were pretty good brokers because they had Xerox training, which was excellent, the best there was at the time. Mm -hmm. And you know, every now and then we talk about something. We had broker breakfast groups, which we would all participate in and share information. How did that come about? I, I don't know, but I was in the first one with Terry Rose and George Marcus and a whole bunch of guys. And Because uh, like having worked in different markets before, that's unheard of. Like yeah. people yeah. were competitors, and that seems like a community. Well, violation field. of the Robinson Patent Act is kind of what it was. But. Well, I don't know. We didn't. They didn't. We weren't setting rents or anything or commissions. It was just talking about the business. Where's it going? What do you see? What happened today? Kind of thing. And one one lesson, great lesson I learned from Terry Rose. He was negotiating. He had that big four hundred thousand foot building off of Garrett there that was a. It's been torn down now. Yep. But it was, uh, he had a 10-year lease, and he and Berliner were negotiating this second five years because it was at market the second five. Mm -hmm. And he, he, he was going to Chicago and coming back and telling these stories. 
And one of the guys who was a broker in the broker developer in the group, I won't use his name, said, Terry, it's only a penny. Holy, you spent more money? And Terry says, take that. Take that times 440,000 feet, times 12 months, cap it at five or whatever it was. And then we're talking a half a million dollars. A lot of money, yeah. It was a yeah. lot of money. And I go, holy cow. That's how developers think. Brokers aren't smart enough to think that way. We're, we're chasing the, the next deal. The developers are thinking down the road. I was very impressed. And sure enough, it was a lot of money, and Terry got it. That's With Stan Berliner, you know Stan, he can do it. So. Stan was a great guy. Stan was so, great, yeah. So. And Chambers had every broker in our office getting into a, a broker breakfast group. Yeah. And I ended up in one in 1981. <coughs> and we, even though most of us are out of business, um, we're still friends, and we still have a Christmas dinner, and maybe play golf, and that type of thing. So it's you become you develop friendships with people that help you out along the way. So that was good guidance, uh, and a lot of companies didn't do that either until later. I mean, I'm hearing some stuff of like, yeah, just have, having the gall to like knock on doors, talk to people, treat others as you want to be treated. There's some commonsensical nuggets here. Um, we had a broker, by the way. I won't mention sex or or. Uh, Name, but uh, well, he <laughs> he he was a good cold caller. He was a great cold caller, and he sat in front of me. And he was kind of bouncing around. He I think he was Chambers runner for a little bit, then Chambers unloaded him on me. Uh, he was a lot of work, but I heard him make a, a phone call. This like at five at night, and he calls the president of a company. Of course, he has to get to the gatekeeper, which is his secretary. And he says, uh, this is uh, so-and-so from the IRS. So the president immediately picks up the phone. And he said, no, I said CPS. <laughs> he, he didn't last. He didn't last very long. Yeah. We didn't do that. So. No, but like honesty and where I was going with that tact is like, there's stuff like that that, in my opinion, is the same today as it was 50 or 100 years ago, I think around but um, what are some things that strike you as having changed I mean I think the easy things like technology but uh, sitting here in 23 versus the 70s and the 80s what are the biggest things you feel like have changed better or worse there's a small thing that's changed that's going on right now because of COVID Um, when you cold call like an office broker loves to go in a high rise office and start knocking on doors well now they have the security set up and you and you have to call ahead, you can't, because they didn't want people wandering the hallway, so yeah. you go into downtown San Jose, you can't cold call any of those buildings, because they just will not let you. And following on, tagging on that one, Bill Herwick was a cold banker with me, and Bill would take me out and teach me how to cold call, but he always went at five o'clock. And so five I, o'clock? Five o'clock in the evening, because okay. he said the secretaries or receptionists have gone home, and nobody locks the front door, and we're talking small 10, 20, 30,000 foot tenants, Back in the 70s, okay? okay? No security whatsoever. Got and it. so we, we go knock on the door, open the door, and anybody here? And somebody popped their head out. It was always a decision maker, a hardworking guy who was there, the boss. <laughs> and we we get Brilliant. it. Yeah. yeah. And it worked a couple times. Yeah. Didn't always work, but it was a great gimmick. It really was. Interesting. And then one time, I remember Mozart. Mozart. I used to go see him at late at night because he loved to talk. After about six o'clock, we Herwick and I go up and see him. Yeah. And one time, I guess he was with Mahoney, and they were chit-chatting one afternoon. They got talking about who works hard and who doesn't. Friday afternoon, it's like six thirty, seven o'clock. Yeah. And he says, "I'll bet you twenty bucks, Mahoney, that Chambers is in his office at Cobalt Banker right now." Mahoney says, "No way." 
Mozart picks up the phone and calls me. I was still there on Friday afternoon. <laughs> Chambers, you just made me 20 bucks. Thanks a lot. Click. Hangs up the phone. I hope you had a drink in your hand, by the way. On the way home, I had a little tillery every now and then. So. Okay. But if you look at your success, you know, over over your life, and I'm look, looking at you specifically, Dennis, like, um, do you ascribe most of that to just that? I'm going to shut, rise and grind every day. Like, I'm going to work harder than the next guy. I mean, you commented earlier, like, hey, you know, cold calling wasn't the easiest for me. Like, I'm not trying to, like, fluff the ego here, but I'm just genuinely curious when you take inventory. Like, what do you think it was? Each of us has certain jobs that we can do. We don't know what they are as you're going through college. And sometimes you lock onto one right away, become a doctor or a lawyer, whatever it is you love. I had no idea what I was going to do. This one job just really clicked with me. I, I wasn't a great airline pilot. I could fly, I was decent, I was safe, but I didn't like all the technical stuff. And I started seeing that this probably wasn't, getting laid off was not the end of the world. I was disappointed, but I wasn't brokenhearted. I, I, I didn't really, it was boring. God, it's a boring job. And I was only doing one hour flights. Little shuttle run flights. <laughs> boring. 16 oh. hours to Australia. Oh, my guys are reading Playboy magazine and, you know, that, whatever. It's just, it was so boring. It's horrible. So <laughs> I, what I, I stumbled onto something that really clicked. And that, I think, is the difference. Some people get in a job and it's never going to work for them. They don't know it. And I think I'd have to say the same thing. Yeah. I mean, you love it or you don't. But having that, I mean, the overlay of that discipline to be be there for 12 hours a day, I mean, like, that's its own characteristic, let alone, all right, I'm comfortable being uncomfortable, whether that be in front of uh, prospective clients, you know, existing clients, there's a lot of push in your own comfort zones in ways that I think a lot of people don't intuitively feel comfortable with. Well, yeah. I, my, my goal is to have six meetings a day, either by phone or by meeting. Oh, that's interesting. Six meetings a day. Six meetings a day was my goal. I didn't always get there, but once in a while I would. And then you had to allow driving time in between. Right. Okay. So I, that's why it was our long days. And I, I wanted, I love money. It was wonderful. It was very rewarding. It's not wrong with money. Can't do that in an airline pilot. You got to, you got to fly for 25 years yeah. before you get the big numbers up there. So totally. You guys were always really good too with, I remember early on, like technology. Greg was. Guys, yeah. Greg Davies to Greg's credit. He was, okay. he was right at the top of it. Yeah. I, I was very slow getting into it, but he was good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember we purchased a uh, company purchased uh, computers for the employees, Apple, as I recall, and then set us up on a on a uh, office kind of net because they, they didn't have the uh, the uh, set up internationally the email and that type of thing. But we had it internal in the office, and then you could type. You could type in uh, your contracts and stuff, but it was it was in-house only, and then that evolved. Greg knew it was going to evolve into being able to send emails, and that happened about a year after we had the computers. So I guess he yeah. never thought about it, but I guess he did. Push they, it. They'd store the extra computer on my desk, so it looked like I had a computer. I didn't know how to work it for years, <laughs> and finally I had to figure it out. So, yeah. but you guys manually compile so much data, like. Yeah. Somebody had to input all that in and tracking every building in Silicon Valley. We, long we spent before a ton Coast of Park. money on the support. We had some really great support people. That would do, that's all they did was keep data, correct data. Nobody else had what we had. And that's why we were so successful. Because I could throw somebody in a car, have a run out, computer run out in the old days, or just a printed printout, yeah. typed up printout, 
and we could walk and talk and no one else had that. No one else would spend the money right. to do it because it you had to have at least two people for, to do it right. Right. And that's expensive. So. But if it, it doesn't seem like a big deal now, but at the time it was. Oh, Because you yeah. could get all this information yeah. and I yeah. remember asking for information. You guys could just print it out. It yeah. was amazing. So, yeah. I mean, we've, we've covered probably a couple decades of experience here. Um, fast forwarding to today, um, CPS as a firm got, uh, if you can walk the listeners through, acquired by a couple companies to kind of where the legacy elements of it remain today. I mean, do you mind walking us through kind of chronologically um, uh, when you sold it and kind of what the compelling factors well, were? I, I, th I think Greg and I, we both kind of burned out after a while. I mean... It, it's a long, we've been doing it for a long time. Yeah. And Greg was, I was kind of bailed out around 2000, 2001. I was, I'd come and go, mm -hmm. and Greg uh, would do the most of the work. I think we just got tired and it was time to sell. We, we may have missed the best window, but we, we got a good buy, and, and it worked out for everybody that stuck around with us. Some people were moving on and stuff. We lost a bunch of guys over time. So. Okay. And you guys sold about 2001, right? Is it about, right, right I, in that time frame somewhere? No, no, I think we were much later than that. Okay. Yeah. Did you have a hard time like disengaging or separating like your identity as a broker from your identity? No, I burned out. I got to the point I worked too hard. That was one of the problems. Yeah. I, I, I could go into a negotiation with attorneys on both sides in a meeting, and I, I knew from just all the done, deals we'd done, pretty close within 10% of where we'd all end up based on what I knew about my client and or the other client, whatever it was we knew. Um, but I had to sit there for hours and days well, we'd work our way through all this minutia. And sure enough, at the end, I used to tell Nancy, because we did a lot of these leases all over the country for her, Nancy, here's where we're going to end up. How do you want to do it? She yeah. said, let's, let's do the dance. We have to do the dance. It's a big deal. i got to convince the board we tried. And we go do the dance. And sure enough, we get pretty close. You knew where you were going to end up. Yeah. yeah. It's just... Yeah. And, and, and so 2001, you, you sold it to BT, is that correct? Uh, yes, I believe so. it was BT. Yeah, but yeah. Okay. And then they... They did a couple mergers of other companies and then yeah. ended up with Cushman at the end, so, which is good. It was right. a good merger for everybody. That happened real quickly at that yeah, point. Yeah, I think Todd was, Don Beatty was in charge of that. It, it went really well. It was, it was a smooth move. Yeah. I remember <laughs> playing golf with Eric Fox, and like within three years, he had like golf balls from different <laughs> companies. Yeah. Well, like, it's just one of those <laughs> different coffee mugs. Quickly. Yeah, I yeah. still got some of the old coffee mugs. Yeah. So, good stuff. So. I was going to ask any other um, life advice, career advice, wisdom, uh, young, old people, everything in between? No. I'm just, just happy to be here. Yeah. Where's the bell? It's good. Where's the bell? Yeah. No, I just respect the heck out of both of you guys and just appreciated you making time opening your home and letting us play probably more than 50 questions. You know, you know one little simple thing, and, and this yeah. is just a little deal, and, and people just don't think to do it. You send an email to me, okay? And you say, Dennis, can we do this, this, or this? Or can you have this ready for me on Monday at 10? I have to respond to you and let you know, I got it, I'll be there at 10. Okay? You'd be surprised the number of people that won't respond. They got the job, they've got the assignment, <laughs> but the client who asked for the assignment doesn't know they've got it. I, I do this, happens all the time, still does it. it you know, I'll send something to, a, to the contractor or a subcontractor working on the house. Can you get this for me? I never hear back from the guy. He's ordered it, but I didn't know that. He doesn't respond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in everyday life, always respond. I push that hard in the office. Oh, let them know you're there. Today, you can send a, a smiley face or a, I got it, a thumbs up, whatever. It's easier. Just let them know. Yeah. 
Yeah. And staying in touch, the follow-on is staying in touch with your clients. And I know I've screwed that up a few times. <laughs> oh, we all have. Yeah. You, you kind of, it's just kind of drift off into the side somewhere, and then you forget about them. And uh, if they like you a lot, maybe they'll call you back, but, uh, or call you to remind you that my lease is up. What do I do? Somebody else rolls in the door. You're not there. Yeah. Yep. At this time, we've, we've uh, been talking with Dennis and Heather and myself, Kent, uh, but I'd like to just do a quick mention of some former CPSers who still are contributing, making positive input to our marketplace. Starting with Todd Beatty, who started with uh, CPS back right out of college, out of Berkeley, and uh, became a broker and did very well. And uh, uh, he is now the... Um, Vice Chairman and Managing Principal at the Cushman and Wakefield office, Silicon Valley office here in San Jose. Uh, and uh, well-liked and, and an excellent office manager. Uh, Keith Claxon, another, another one of the CPSers, um, he assembled, I'm not sure how many parcels of land for developers so they could build their R&D buildings and offices and so forth throughout North San Jose and Milpitas. Scott Lampson, who uh, everybody recall was a uh, star basketball player during the uh, championship years at Santa Clara back in the late 80s. He was at CPS, one of our first guys. He um, uh, did very well, moved on to uh, uh, Prologis, where he later became a senior vice president, but was always a mover and shaker in the marketplace up in Fremont. Sherman Chan, uh, we all know this guy, success follows him wherever he, wherever he goes. Uh, Jeff Houston is another example of that, along with Mike Michaels, who actually started a company at, at some point. Dick Scott, who now wears a developer's hat, was a great uh, CPS broker. Ray Baker was one of our sales manager, and he now enjoys uh, his retirement. Little house on a lake, uh, second house on a lake up in the Sierras where he likes to fish. Um, Kirsten Grotto. Everybody knows Kirsten. Uh, also, uh, in memory of those no longer with us, uh, I'd like to mention Tom Hayes, Kathy Hines, Steve Bergeron, Connie Baker, and Chip McDonald. May they all rest in peace. And a quick plug for the Veterans Memorial in Los Gatos. Uh, we have a top artist come in and designed and help us build the memorial. And it serves as a a token to all of our veterans who've come home from wars that uh, we still care for them and uh, we remember what, what they did. Uh, there's a website, I'll throw it out here right now, honoravet.org. You can buy pavers for family members who've served. Uh, you can come down and join our foundation. We're happy to have anybody, any help we can get. And that's it. Thank you. Well, anyways. Uh, thank you guys. Thank you guys, guys for the, for the time, the questioning, the hospitality, the service to the industry, and um, paying it forward to some other people. So thank you. Thank you for caring. Thanks, guys.